Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, January 7th, 2013, and this is episode 1051 of the Survival Podcast. It's Monday, and that means this is a feedback show. This is where you've sent me emails with article for Jack, story for Jack, comment for Jack, anything like that for Jack in the subject line. And uh, the the key is for Jack. And don't get clever with putting the number four in there for four. Look, if you guys want to get on the air, you need to follow the procedures I give you because it will give you the best chance. This is just like what I was saying on Friday about the call-in shows. Know your question or comment, make it first, and then give me details. It's not me being a jerk. It really isn't. I know some of you think it is. It's, it's not. It's that I have Outlook set up. So that anything with the words for Jack go into a special folder all by themselves so they get screened a little bit differently than all the rest of my email. If you don't do that, then it's incumbent upon me to dig your email out of all the other emails and random crap I get every day. And guess what? It probably ain't going to happen. So don't get cute. Don't get clever. Follow the format. Short question, comment, or, 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 or what have you at the top of the email Followed by the details. If you do that, there's people that get on the air once every two weeks. They follow the format. Trust me, I'm doing this for your benefit. I want to use your feedback, but I also have to screen out 200 plus emails a day. Some days it's as high as 400. And if you do what I'm asking you to do, you're more likely to end up in the, the, the final call. And that means if you get to the final call, you can get to the last of the calling and, and get into the show. All right, before we get to your questions, comments, stories, feedback, videos, etc. today, and I'm going to tell you right now, with all of the hubbub going on, there's going to be a tremendous amount today about gun control because that's what's hot, that's what's coming in. A lot of reasonable questions from the audience on gun control and different things and some things that are not exactly true that get used to defend our rights. And we need to be careful about using things that are not exactly true to defend our rights because then you look foolish and one of them we're going to talk about today for instance is the Dick Act. The Dick Act is actually a great thing to point to as a pro-gun person because it specifically stated that there were different levels of militia and, and one was the unorganized militia. That's used you, me, and every man, woman, and child in America, the whole of the people. And it acknowledges that. But it's also being stated that it can, it was written in a way that it can't be repealed. I'll talk more about that in a bit, but you can't write a law that can't be repealed. No Congress can imply that restriction on a, a future Congress. But, There is some validity there. We'll talk about that in a bit. Because um, to repeal it, well, it would cause a big problem. Anyway, the bigger issue is it wasn't. Anyway, we'll get to that. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, jambullion.com. You know, when I had to let go our last sponsor who sold silver and gold, I wanted to make sure that I brought you guys a sponsor who would do a great job for you, Uh, who would give you a great selection, would still be a small family-owned company where if you needed to talk to the owner, you could get them on the phone. But also I wanted then, you know, smaller companies usually pay a little bit more money. I'm usually okay with that if it's a little bit, but I don't want it to be three or four dollars a coin more for the same coin. It just doesn't make sense in this market that's so commodity-driven. Then I found JM Bullion. I got the small company where you could talk to the owner, and I got pricing that beat big players like Monex and Atmex. And I went, this is a home run. 
This is a guy I want to do business with. I extended him the offer to sponsorship, and he's here now. And you can now do business with jambullion.com. Check him out today. Great selection, great pricing on silver and gold. Next up today, backyardfoodproduction.com. Uh, you know, we talk about silver and gold. We talk about ammo and guns and all of that other stuff. But you know the one thing you absolutely must have to survive other than water is food. It's something we use every day. And if you don't eat, it's like not putting fuel in your car. Eventually, it runs out and shuts down. In the case of your car, they can shut down for a week or more, and you can put some more fuel in it, and it'll run again. If you shut down from not eating, you don't get to refuel that way anymore. You've got to feed yourself and feed your family every day. There's a reason for the old cliche of, i got to keep a roof over a head and food on the table. Well, as far as the food on the table part, I can't recommend a better resource for you to get than Backyard Food Productions DVD Food production systems for a backyard or small farm. You can find that DVD and learn more about Marjorie and her work at BackyardFoodProduction.com. Best way to visit Backyard Food Production, JM Bullion, and all our sponsors is to go to the SurvivalPodcast.com first. Click on their uh, banners in the right-hand margin, and then you know you're dealing with someone that actually carries my personal endorsement and the approval of our listener ad council. Uh, last but not least today, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. And you get so many discounts on so many things, your membership will pay for itself. Uh, well, I said last but not least, but I also want to remind you guys, TSP Gear, man, get on by TSP Gear. I'm going to put probably a couple different video segments from today's show on YouTube. I'll be wearing the Every Citizen of Sentinel t-shirt. Uh, and the Every Citizen of Sentinel hat when I do that today. Uh, that's a good segue into getting into the show and letting you guys know about the YouTube stuff. Um, there's times where I can do a lot of YouTube stuff, times where I can't. This is one of those in-between times. Uh, my phone's been busted again because my wife dropped it this time, and she's got my iPhone today. But I've got my HD camera set up, and I'm going to be recording uh, parts of today's show, most of it on the gun control issue. Uh, I am going to make those videos available as I can get them uploaded because now I have to edit them and pull them out and do all this other stuff with them so it'll take longer. And they're bigger files and you don't just tell the iPhone to do it for you. Um, but I'll try to get those up over the next couple days or two. I'll get, try to get at least one of them up today. And uh, you can share those. And I'm going to put all of my videos starting with the... Uh, the video that I released last week on the Feinstein Amendment and the video that I released recently about, you know, buying whatever other people's are not, and all of these videos from here into a playlist for you so you can share them individually or as a list. I'm going to do that because I think I have a way of explaining this that cuts through a lot of the bullshit uh, that, that many people uh, bring to the table. But I also wanted to say this. Once that's done... Once I've got that done, I'm going to get off of this topic as best I can so that we make sure we don't turn into gun rights radio. That is not the purpose of the Survival Podcast. Survival Podcast is about self-sufficient, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. That just happens to be the big attacker at right now. And I'm going to tell you something. What I've told you would happen has already happened. There's a new pending piece of legislation that I'll cover today that sounds much more common sense and much more reasonable, and even many gun owners, and I mean even many gun owners that own uh, the weapons that Feinstein wants to ban, that our regular shooters would look at this and say, 99% of it ain't that bad. It really isn't. But there's a couple pieces in there that are very dangerous and head down a very slippery slope. So these are things we have to talk about right now. So this will be almost an all-gun show today. And I know for some of you it's like a kind of a letdown. 
right? But this is, and this is what I want members of this audience that aren't necessarily big into guns to understand. And I really want to speak to you guys before I get started today about something very, very important um, from the standpoint of, well, you're a gun owner, but you're not worried about the assault weapons ban because you don't own any of those weapons. If they can take what I have for me, it's only a matter of time until you can take what you have from you. The people behind this move are not just trying to make the world safer in a better place. Their intended agenda, stated over and over and over again in their documentation, in their efforts, and whenever they speak to anybody other than the mainstream general public is a complete and total disarmament of the American people. It's what they want. And, you know, I'm in my Sentinel gear today, and let me say, this is exactly the type of issue I was talking about when I said not on my watch. So we got a lot to cover today, and uh, let's get started. All right, so the first thing that I want to cover today is um, kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy and how we as gun owners can find out sometimes that our friends are not our friends. Um, as I stated last week, I believe that the uh, the purpose of the Feinstein Firearms Bill is to never be passed, to never see the light of day, to never come out of committee, to never go anywhere. Uh, and all of this gun ban proposal talk is just to scare the hell out of gun owners so that we'll compromise into something that's not quite as bad. And that there were certain things that they would try to do, and one would be closing the gun show loophole, and uh, that they would do it in a way that didn't close the gun show loophole that actually closed the ability for private people to sell their firearms independently to each other completely and totally, and that it would be very hard to actually uh, to fight and win against that fight this time, and that there would be other things. Uh, so I, I found this bill that was introduced on December 31st, 2012. The bill is H.R. 6725. Again, H.R. 6725. You can look it up on GovTrack. Um, the bill was introduced by Representative James Moran, who is a Democrat from Virginia, from the 8th District. Now, I know what you're thinking, a Democrat from the 8th District of uh, Virginia. That probably means that this is some onerous gun legislation that only the crazy liberals on the left would come up with. This is actually the NRA Members Gun Safety Act. Yep, that's what it's called, the NRA Members Gun Safety Act. So this is supposed to be the common sense stuff that even the NRA members can get behind. And if you read it, you'll find a lot of what they're wanting to do isn't that bad. I'm going to give you a summary since they didn't prepare a freaking summary. I think you should have to always prepare a summary to go with your bills to introduce it. Um, but again, you can look it up again on GovTrack.us, HR 6725. I'll put a link in the video notes and the show notes for today as well. Um, but basically what it does is it strengthens the background checks. Hmm, where'd we hear that before? Uh, on anybody that wants to buy a gun. I'm not really opposed to that. Because when they say strengthen the background checks, they basically mean the exact background checks that are already run, that the databases are all fragmented in bringing them together. I, I am okay with that. Uh, because that procedure already exists. Basically they're saying, let's do a better job of it. But where it starts to get gray is that it states that you can no longer basically sell your gun to your friend privately at all. That's the quote-unquote gun control loophole. So now you have this NRA member's law, and I don't know if the NRA really endorses this. This could I, I mean, I just found this law. This guy could be an NRA member and call it that, but 
something doesn't feel right about that name being on there and it totally being disassociated with the NRA. Something, something stinks here. And there is some chatter online about the NRA supporting this, so we'll see. But it would basically make it illegal for me to sell you my gun. Not at a gun show, anywhere. And this is what people don't understand. There is no gun show loophole. That is a lie given to you guys by the liberal media. And I'm speaking mostly to those on YouTube that may have not seen the show before. Most of the people that listen to my show every day know this. The, the gun control loophole is simply that private citizens can go to a gun show and sell their gun without, a, without running it through a licensed federal firearms dealer, which sounds like, well, that's a loophole. But I can go to your house and sell you my gun. You can come to my house and sell me your gun. We can meet in a Starbucks parking lot, and I can sell you a gun privately and individually. Now, if you think that's a problem, then that's open for debate, and we can debate that. And we can decide whether or not that should be allowed. I personally think it should, but I can understand the concerns of people that say that it shouldn't be. But let's call it what it is, the private selling of firearms. Because here's how it works at a gun show. In a gun show, there'll be a group of tables. That group of tables will generally be somewhere in the, uh, in, in the kind of the side or the back. And those will be people that are private sellers. They're not in the business of selling firearms, but they have 10 or so guns. They're willing to rent a table. And they're there just like any other private citizen, except they've rented a table. When they talk about the gun control loophole or the gun show loophole, that's, that's the essence of it. What they lead you to believe is that when you go into a gun show, you can just buy guns all over the place. 99% of the guns at a gun show are being sold by licensed dealers, and they have to go through the same background check that you would go through at any store that you would go to to buy a gun. Period. End of story. What else happens at gun shows? And the reason this is a good thing for a gun owner. If I have a gun I'd like to sell, and I don't want to be in kind of an unsafe environment, meeting a guy at Starbucks or something, uh, and I go to a gun show, I have hundreds of dealers and thousands of people that might want to buy my gun. I can walk around with, you know, I'll go in, there's always a police officer at the front, they check your weapon, they make sure it's clear, they lock the trigger so that it cannot be fired with a zip tie, and you better not cut it off because you're in deep crap if you do, and they'll whip you out, and you, you can walk around with that gun. And anybody can basically walk up to you and say, hey, I'd like to buy that. That saves me from going to a pawn shop and having one person I can possibly sell my gun to and getting a, a better price. But again, I understand, I understand the people that say, if you buy a gun in this country, it's reasonable that we should make sure that you're not a felon, etc., what have you. I can understand it. I disagree with it because the felon is still going to go buy the gun privately. Okay? But I understand At least I can understand that. What's more dangerous in this bill, far more dangerous, is there is guidance for states as to how they can issue their concealed carry permits. They require that the state only issue concealed carry permits to someone over the age of 21. That person takes some sort of training. And it's loosely written to give the states a great deal of latitude in how they run their concealed carry permit program. And as I was reading it, every line of it seemed to be something that almost every state was already doing that already has a concealed carry permit. Until I got to the one that is despicable and is used in countless countries where people don't have a right to self-defense to impede their right to self-defense. There's a line in there that says that the applicant must show good cause for requesting a concealed carry permit. This is completely unacceptable. Do you know what my good cause is for carrying concealed? 
to protect myself and others. The end done. I don't need good cause. That is good cause. Now, the way it's written, your state can determine what good cause is for itself. But that is a place we need to really be careful with. If you start reading this bill, you'll find 90% of it to make sense to you, even if you're a gun owner. And then you'll find 10% that has no business being there. This is the stealth attack. Now, will it be H.R. 6725 that these guys bring forward? Um, I don't know. But I bet you it'll be something like this. This has the exact types of provisions in it. There is no restriction on guns per se individual in it. But it does tighten up who can buy a gun in the current system. And I'll tell you what, even me, I have an issue with the fact that someone that should not be able to buy a gun can legally, in essence, buy a gun. And it's not true, though. Because if you're not supposed to have a gun, it's illegal for you to have a gun. Therefore, it's illegal for you to buy a gun. And this is what a lot of people just won't seem to get through their thick skulls. Laws only apply to law-abiding citizens. Criminals don't care about laws. But here's a perfect example of a bill that is a subversive bill that goes in and applies language against our rights in a way that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay, staying with the same theme, I've gotten a lot of questions from people and comments from people on, on the YouTube segments that I've been adding to the show um, about what the Second Amendment is, what it means, what the intent of the fathers are, and how, founding fathers were, and how it applies to, let's say, the military or the National Guard. I've had people, and let's start out with a question I get from people on both sides. Usually I get a very level-headed question from people that are open-minded, which is, what exactly are arms? What exactly does it mean the people shall not be infringed in the right to keep and bear arms? What is considered an arm? And could the founding fathers have envisioned the type of arms that we have today? I'm sure they could have, because anybody can look forward and say that the gun will progress. Right, And we know the gun will be continue to progress. But then you get questions from the idiots. And if you think this way, you are an idiot. Well, I guess that means you're supposed to be able to have uh, you know, chemical weapons and nuclear bombs and tow missiles. and No, no. And that's not what arms would mean to the founders today or what it would have meant to them back then. Arms is what is the individual soldier armed with. Some soldiers are specifically trained to carry heavy machine guns, but that's not the, the typical armament of the individual soldier. Some soldiers are trained to use tanks, but that is not the typical armament of the modern soldier. When you become a soldier and you go into the military, Marine Corps and Army is the main place that this would apply, but Navy and Air Force as well, you are going to be issued a weapon, an individual weapon. And every soldier is going to be entered, uh, given a weapon that's going to fall in one, one or two categories or both, if they get issued both. A, a selective fire rifle or a semi-automatic pistol or both. That is the definition of arms because it's what the individual carries as their individual arms. The founders... We're not worried about, well, will this stuff advance? Because this was the purpose of the Second Amendment, to put the citizen on equal footing with the individual soldier. So that the citizen was equal to the soldier, therefore the citizen could not become the subject of the soldier. There were three main driving forces on the right to keep and bear arms behind the concept 
of a militia. Now, to understand what the militia was to the founders, it was everybody. It was everybody. There was even a militia act that required you, if you were a male over 18 years of age, to have a rifle, to have ammo to go with it, and to be able to use it. Okay? Everybody. And that was then replaced by something called the Dick Act, and we'll talk about that in a later segment. Okay, but that's still on the books. And that the, the one thing I want to pull out about the Dick Act right now is it specified that there was the organized militia, which is the National Guard, and it strengthened the government's ability to run a program with something like a National Guard reservist, and that there was an unorganized militia, which was everybody else. And it made provisions to continue the requirement that men of a certain age maintain firearms in their possession. Okay, so that's we have precedent from a hundred years apart there, with the same intent. And when we look at constitutional law, we have to look at what's what's said and what the intent of the law was when it was put on the books. Our founders knew there were three primary threats to the individual. One was at the individual level whether it be a rogue band of Indians at the time, or whether it just be somebody next door that wanted to take what you had because they couldn't do so by force. So the right to keep and bear arms is designed to allow the individual to defend themselves, their family, their home, their property, and the members of their community. Number two was the threat of foreign invasion. And what we hear today is we don't need the Second Amendment anymore because no one's going to invade us. First of all, you don't know that. Okay, And an invasion is not always an organized invasion. It can be a disorganized group of terrorist cells, for instance, which happened in India just a couple years ago. And India has a pretty formidable military, and it still brought the cities to their knees where this happened. So there is always the potential for an outside threat. But the biggest threat that the founders feared to the people of the new republic they established was themselves. Our founders knew that a government will always grow, will always bloat, and will always infringe upon the liberties of its people. Always. And if you don't think so, show me one that didn't. Tell me we're not less free today than we were 20 years ago, let alone 200 years ago. And the individual being armed was seen as the final check on the power of government. That a people who are armed and can defend themselves will only compromise so far. That's the purpose of the Second Amendment. As far as I've had people ask me, well, if it's a militia, what militia are you part of? I am the part of the United States militia. The part of the militia that you're part of, whether you want to be or not. The fact that every citizen has a duty to defend this nation from all enemies, both foreign and domestic. That militia. That militia. That is the militia. And it doesn't even matter what the founders used to justify the Second Amendment. The amendment is written in two parts. The second part is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Shall not. In any legal contract, that is an absolute. Do you get that? It's an a- Every legal contract ever written using the term shall not, shall not is seen as an absolute. The right of the People. The people does not mean the National Guard. The people means the people. It means the people and all other nine amendments in the Bill of Rights. The people is always meant a single thing. 
We had some of our founders state things like this. Who are the militia? I tell you, sir, they are the whole of the people. Okay. The intent of the Second Amendment was clear. That the individuals of this nation are not to be disarmed. That's why it says, shall not. It's a very simple thing. So, what armament or lethality that individual citizen is entitled to, to me, is the same armament that the individual soldier is issued as a standard matter of course. Which means we're actually one layer behind that already. Because what they're talking about in the media, and what they're calling assault weapons, are not assault weapons. The military defines an assault weapon as a weapon capable of firing an intermediate cartridge, which would be somewhere between a pistol and a rifle, which an M4 with a .223 is it's really a rifle cartridge, but it fits that definition, it's loosely enough, capable of selective fire, meaning that I can either put it on semi-auto or full auto, or in the case of our modern-issued weapons, which most P-brain gun grabbers don't even know, the military soldier is carrying a M4 carbine today, or an older M16, uh, if they're carrying those in some units still, that is on selective fire, either fires one shot every time you pull the trigger, or goes to a selective fire, when you pull the trigger, it fires a three-round burst. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. That's because when you fire a full automatic weapon in a combat scenario, that you should be firing three to five round bursts. But they determined that the individual soldier would lose composure in a firefight, so they restricted the weapon rather than do better training of the soldier. So the average soldier today is carrying a SIG 226 or a Beretta M9, uh, or in some cases some old school units and some SEALs and, and what have you, like the 1911 for the power of the 45. They're carrying a semi-automatic magazine detachable pistol capable of taking magazines with uh, high capacity rounds, if you want to call them that. And they're carrying a semi-automatic carbine capable of selective fire. They're not carrying tow missiles. They're not carrying nuclear bombs. Okay? And all of those weapons require additional, um, okay for them to be used in rules of engagement. You don't just go out and the individual soldier doesn't make a decision to launch chemical weapons or a nuclear bomb. And when you say things like that on the other side of this debate, we don't take you seriously because you're not behaving seriously. You're acting like a fool. If you want to debate on gun control with people that are pro-gun, I have some suggestions. Number one, learn something about guns so you know what the hell you're talking about uh, because that will help us actually take you seriously. Number two, learn a little about the history of this country and its constitution and don't believe the media talking points that are given to you. It's very clear what the founders said. And understand, we just had a Supreme Court decision on this. And yes, it was a 5-4 decision. It only won by one vote. But the Supreme Court upheld that the right to keep and bear arms was an individual right, period. Many of you on the left are, and I'm not even left or right, folks. I'm a libertarian. Okay, so on social issues, I agree more with the left than the right, just to clear that up. But many of you on the left are very proud of your narrow win in the Supreme Court to uphold something called Obamacare. That's now the law of the land. It has to be a, you know, and there's no constitutional amendment to support Obamacare. We're talking about a constitutional amendment here. To repeal the Second Amendment would require a two-thirds vote of the states. And frankly, you guys on the other side, you don't have that. You're not getting that. Not on my watch. Not on the watch of my fellow patriots. So if you really want to understand this issue, do a little research, learn a little bit of history. 
Okay, um, the next thing I want to do is I, I want to talk to you guys today about how guns actually stop crimes. Guns actually save lives. Because we always hear about the other side of the story, but there's countless incidents where people as citizens, as off-duty officers, etc., use their guns to prevent a crime or to uh, actually shoot an assailant, and you don't get a lot of coverage of it. So what I'd like to read to you now is the story sort of of that, except, well, that part gets left out. Um, let me read to you this, and I'm going to have to look away from the camera to do it for the YouTube clip, but uh, here we go. Gunfire broke out at a San Antonio movie theater late Sunday, leaving two people wounded and sending panicked moviegoers rushing for the exits, ducking for cover, according to CBS San Antonio affiliate KNS, which cites police and witnesses. Witnesses tell Ken's uh, n numerous shots were fired inside and outside the San Catecos Mayan Palace 14 theater complex around 925, setting off a scramble to safety before police and EMS arrived. The complex was evacuated and sealed off for several hours. Bexter County Sheriff Spokesman Louis Antoon says the incident started when the man fired shots in a nearby restaurant carried into the theater. It's not clear what led to the shooting. Antoon says the man headed toward the theater and shot a male in the lot. The age and condition of the victim was, wasn't immediately known, but Antu says his injuries did not appear life-threatening. The gunman entered the theater, Antu says, where he fired a shot but did not hit anyone. An off-duty sheriff's deputy working security shot the gunman. At one point, the suspect also fired at San Antonio Police Department patrol car. He was shooting at a marked unit, Antu said. He, know, he knows he was shooting at an officer, so that's an automatic charge of attempted capital murder. The suspect was taken. How is it not attempted capital murder, by the way, if you're shooting at anybody? Right? Um, but this story sounds like pretty interesting stuff, doesn't it? So this guy goes in and tries to shoot people in a theater, and an off-duty officer carrying, concealed by the way, shoots him. And it just says that she shot him. It doesn't really explain the whole thing. I had to go to Snoops to get the whole story. Yeah, I had to go to, I'm sorry, Snoops to get the whole story. Um, here's the more accurate story. The employees inside the restaurant fled out the side door of the parking lot. Investigators said Garcia began chasing the employees, that's the gunman Garcia, by the way, uh, and continuing firing at them as they ran through the parking lot and into the Mayan Palace Theater next door. As Garcia was running through the parking lot, he shot at the windshield of a San Antonio police patrol car after an officer in the car shined a spotlight on him. The officer was not injured. Garcia then ran inside the movie theater where he continued his search for the restaurant employees. Moviegoers in the lobby bathroom and some theaters reported hearing multiple gunshots. The gunshots caused the people inside the theater to panic. Everybody was just coming out of the side of the theater, running out, and the emergency exits, and everyone was screaming and running, a woman who was at the theater said. Authorities said, said one person was shot by Garcia. Garcia was finally stopped by an off-duty Baxter County Sheriff's Department officer who was working security at the theater. Officials said the officer, Sergeant Lista Castellano, heard the gunfire in the theater, ran towards the sound of shooting to find what was going on. Sergeant Castellano spotted Garcia coming out of the bathroom with his gun drawn and fired at him, shooting him not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. That's what it took to put him down. Now, you would have to think this must have happened a long time ago. Because with all of the hubbub going on about the Connecticut school shootings, you would think there's no way this happened any period. Two days afterward, 
When your TV was being bombarded every day telling you, we've got to do something, we've got to do something, what you saw here, and you can make anything you want to about it being an off-duty sheriff's officer, and then she knew what to do with the gun. Because I'm about to show you that somebody uh, that was also a female, without that level of training, also knew what to do with a gun and probably saved her life and the lives of her kids. Okay, But the reality here was the best thing to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That's what happened, and your media did not report it. You have to dig to find this story. You have to dig really hard, and to get the full details, you have to dig really, really hard. Now, you would think that the people in the media that want to ban guns would be holding this up as another example of somebody with a gun that ran into a theater that could have shot a bunch of people. But they don't want to bring it up when somebody with a gun stops them. So, I promised you another story. Let me read you a short one here. This was from Georgia. This just happened a couple days ago. Loganville, Georgia. Update. According to Walton County Sheriff's Office Chief Deputy Keith Brooks, the young man, the young mother shot the burglar after he broke into her Longville home Friday morning. Brooks said deputies were called in on a report of a burglary in progress. The home was in Henderson Ridge Subdivision, South Sharon Church Road. Quote, she was aware he was trying to break into the home and took the children to hide in the attic space with them. But he found her, Brooks said, end quote, adding that, that, uh, that was when she, sh- adding that was when she shot him. Good for her. She then ran to a neighbor with the children and left, he left in a car. Brooks said the burger subsequently wrecked the car in the woods, which is where the deputies found him. He was conscious and alert when we got to him, Brooks said adding they were withholding the name of the burglar for the moment. The Walton Tribune reported it was 32-year-old Loganville man uh, and that he was in critical condition after being shot five times. WSB-TV is reporting the name is Paul Slater of Atlanta and that he has a record. He has also been listed as a Snellville resident in previous mugshots. Gee, a guy with a record in previous mugshots broke into a home and found the woman and she shot him. I want you to take special note of something here, though, guys. We have two incidences here, minorly reported, of armed citizens defending themselves or their families or their fellow citizens with a gun and doing so effectively and for it to work. There's something else to note here. I'm tired of people asking me, why do I need a high-capacity magazine? Why do I need a high-capacity magazine? Well, there was one intruder, one intruder in both of these situations. One individual was shot four times with four shots because that sheriff's deputy apparently is a pretty good shot. And the other one was shot five times with six shots. Both of them were not completely incapacitated. Apparently, this woman had a revolver. She had six shots. If this guy was alert and aware, if he had chosen to not run, if he had realized she was out of ammunition, he probably could have continued to attack her and probably beaten her to death. Yeah, there's a reason that we need weapons for self-defense with greater capacity. What if instead of one guy in that theater, it was two? What if it was two? How many shots might you need to take out that threat if you're the only armed citizen there to defend it? It's so easy to buy into the BS that the media feeds you every day. It really is. But these are just two examples. And what I'm going to start doing, and I might not even do this on the air. I might do this just on YouTube. Every month I get the NRA magazine. Sometimes I'm happy with the NRA. Sometimes I'm not. 
but they are a good gun rights lobby in, in many ways, and they have helped us in the past. And one of the things that they do that gets vastly overlooked, it is in every episode of the American Hunter or American Rifleman, whichever one of the two magazines you choose as part of your membership, in the beginning of it, there'll be the armed citizen. And there'll be nine, ten stories of citizens who used a weapon to defend themselves and their property or to defend somebody else successfully. And no one ever reports this. So I might start doing a YouTube segment once a month where I just read to you all of the stories that you know were reported there. And I can ask you guys to help me with this. Keep sending me your stories of successful defense by armed citizens. And I'll keep making little YouTube videos of them. We'll have a, um, a playlist a mile long of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, because that's how many there are, people that have successfully defended themselves. And then when you hear from someone how, you know, oh, you're more likely to shoot a loved one, or, you know, you're more, you know, all these other nonsensical stats that the media just creates out of thin air. You can say, really? Well, here's how many people we have from one source documented that have defended themselves. There's two for you. And with that, we're going to move on to a uh, another segment of the show and get off the gun control stuff for a while. Because, yeah, we've, we've covered a lot on gun control. And, and I, I again, I don't want to turn TSP into gun rights radio, but this is a major issue right now. But let's go into and finish up the show with a few questions from folks on other things that are important to living that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't, and furthering our personal liberty. This one, I, I could not come more off of the subject, so it's why I chose this as my exit, my segue, I guess you would call it. It says, hi, Jack. I'm a senior in high school. I've been listening to your show for almost a year now. I know what you have to say about college, but my dad and I have been looking at schools for some time now. I have a dilemma, however. I feel like my dad is pushing me too hard towards a four-year college path, and I think college would be nice. I am reluctant to leave my family, friends, and hometown behind for a school halfway across the country. I know this is a personal decision I ultimately have to make on my own but I would like some of your advice on it. I have an interest in engineering, but I have a true passion for gardening. I basically love to learn anything, actually, but I am wary of the high cost of getting this knowledge in a university setting and want to minimize it. Any thoughts you have would be greatly appreciated. Sincerely, Jordan. Okay, let's start off with what I my feelings on, on college, because I think a lot of times they get misunderstood. If you have an aptitude for college and you know why you want to go, I am 100% for college. I am opposed to college for every, this, everybody should go to college crap is a lie. And the amount of money people spend for a degree is ridiculous. Okay, so let's just make sure we're clear on that, Jordan, that I'm not saying you shouldn't go to college. You actually sound like a great candidate for college. You really do. Um, as far as a four-year institution, if you want a degree in engineering, I don't think you should get anywhere near darkening the door of a two-year associate's degree school. I really don't. Even if you uh, go to a school where they guarantee that the the, uh, the credits are transferable, because the level of work required at a four-year university from everybody that I talk to that's taken that path is shocking to them when they come over from uh, gaining two years at a community college. And that's not that big a deal if you're in business or marketing or what have you. But in something like engineering, I think that if you want an engineering degree, a four-year school makes sense. Now, but that doesn't mean there's any reason for you to go halfway across the country. If you want to, to be close to home and family and friends, even if you live on campus or what have you, there's probably a four-year university somewhere near you. 
Uh, you probably want to look at your state college system. You can probably spend a lot less money than going to a private institution. That's if you really want an engineering degree. If that's not what you really want, you have to understand something now. And your dad might be pissed at me for this, but I, I don't really care because it's the truth. You're now an adult or soon to be an adult. The decisions that you make going forward about your future are yours and yours alone. They are not your father's. I suggest you listen deeply to your father, you respect your father, you honor him, and you consider what he has to say carefully because he knows you better than I do. But in the end, Jordan, you must make your own decisions about all walks of life going forward as an adult because your father's not going to pay your student loan debt for you. You're going to have to pay your student loan debt. And if you just sort of kind of like engineering but not really, then that can be a problem when you end up with $70,000 or $50,000 or $80,000, depending on what it is, of debt. Uh, and then the only choice you have is a profession that's really not what you want. That said, if you want a future in sustainable agriculture, an engineering degree is not a bad thing to have now, is it? Uh, many of our military officers have engineering degrees, and it's it's a highly sought uh, degree for military officers because if you can if you can you know work like with the mind of an engineer, you have a problem solving capability. So it's a huge advantage if it's what you really want. And I'm covering this because I think I have two main groups of this audience that I need to hear this message today. People like Jordan that are about to step up into that world and thousands of you guys that are parents with kids that you're thinking, well, my kid's going to college. Your kid may not be cut out for college. College may not be right for your child. No matter how much you want to believe that, and believe it or not, you can really hurt them by forcing the issue if it's not right for them because you can saddle them with tens of thousands of dollars in debt. And I don't think most of the parents that are forcing their kids' hand on this plan to pay that debt for their kids if they're going into hawk to do it. Now, if you can pay for their school, that's a little bit different. But in the end, it's still up to our children once they become adults what to do with their lives. This shows about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. And my message to parents today that have any preconceived notions about what your child should or should not be doing as an adult, what I want you to hear is there should be no individual's liberty and right to self-determination in the world where it's more important to you than your own children. You should value the liberty and right of self-choice of your children as they become young adults more so even than your own. It's all nice to say, I want them to have more than I had. Maybe they loved what you had. Maybe they loved growing up in your home. Maybe they want to be just like you. Maybe they'll be happy to be half the man or woman you are. Be grateful for that if that's the case. Because some of the worst offenders are the parents who never did go to college and say, I want that for my child because I never had it. Well... Maybe they don't want it. Maybe if that's your dream, it's not too late. Maybe you should go take some classes and not try to live vicariously through your child, be it through Little League Baseball or going to a great university somewhere. It's not right. It's not acceptable. It's not in the lines of liberty. Once your children are old enough to legally make their own decisions... We need to respect those. So, Jordan, I can't tell you what you should do and what you shouldn't do. 
other than I do think you should hear your father out. But in the end, you must make this decision for yourself. And don't think it's an all-or-nothing decision. And I wouldn't say that it would maybe be a terrible thing if you did your first year even at a community college to find out if this is really the path that you want to be on. Because it's amazing, it's amazing that as parents we understand that 18-year-olds aren't capable of knowing what tomorrow will bring, but we think we are. But we're not either. We don't know what our children are really going to be gifted at. And some people don't find their true gifts until they're in their 30s. We need to give people freedom and liberty if we purport to wish to defend it. Those are my thoughts. And Jordan, you have to do what makes sense for you now. This one kind of goes back to guns. It has nothing to do with gun control other than keeping control of your gun so it doesn't bite you in the ass. Um, Marcus uh, sends us an email that tells people how that bit him in the ass. And it wasn't with a high-capacity magazine. It wasn't a muzzle loader. Hi, Jack. I just learned a lesson I would like to pass on to new hunters. This is my first year hunting, and today was the last day of the first deer hunting season for me. I went out this morning with a friend, and we were walking the fence line. A nice four- to six-point buck walked out 50 yards in front of us and froze. I took a knee, turned the safety off, steadied my muzzle loader, and pulled the trigger, and a pop, but no kick. The deer took off. I slid the rod down the barrel and pressed to find ooze seep back up through the primer hole. I believe the moisture must have gotten to my powder uh, from leaving my muzzle loader in the car between hunts. This was the first shot I had on a deer the whole year, and it was a perfect shot. And me not thinking about moisture in the car cost me a nice buck. So hopefully my beginner mistake will help others. Thanks, Jack, for the show, and keep up the good work. Um, now maybe it makes a lot more sense when you hear somebody say, keep your powder dry. I mean, that's one of those things that you know, we just all say that, and I think a lot of times people don't really realize its origins. I mean, uh, it's not a good thing to get any powder wet, but when you have something like a modern centerfire uh, weapon with properly loaded ammunition, it, it's not that big of an issue. But with a primitive weapon like a muzzle loader, uh, just ambient air moisture can uh, be basically absorbed. And in a vehicle at a time of year where you have rapid temperature swings from cold to warm, you're going to get an awful lot of moisture in that vehicle. So um, in that instance, it's actually probably best uh, when you're muzzleloader hunting to, at the end of the day, find a safe place to discharge your weapon and go ahead and discharge it. Uh, at least doing that every other day and keeping the weapon in a cool, dry location would be a really good idea, specifically depending on what type of uh, muzzle loader you're using. Sounds like this was an inline muzzle loader. It's probably a lot more forgiving than a flintlock or something like that, um, but it's still an issue. It's still an issue, uh, as, uh, as Marcus found out. So hopefully that will help someone else from losing the opportunity to bring home the venison. Throw a little bit of financing on a Monday. Usually it's dominated by financial stuff, but uh, today we were heavy on the gun rights issue. We all know why. Uh, but this one comes in from uh, Colin, and uh, it's an interesting one, and one I wasn't aware of. And uh, the title of the article, and this is on CNN Money, More Sabres Can Convert to Roth 401Ks Under the Fiscal Cliff Deal. But what Colin said is, curious on your take on this, apparently 401k can now be converted to Roth IRAs under fiscal cliff legislation. This is stated to drive up tax revenues, but it seems a short-term goal. What do you expect the ulterior motive is here? 
I don't know if there's an ulterior motive. It's just, uh, and maybe there is. Let's, let's, let's kind of look at it and understand what's going on here. An unexpected provision in the fiscal cliff deal will give workers the option of paying taxes now on the retirement savings instead of later on when they withdraw money from their accounts. The change intended to drum up billions of dollars in government revenue. Again, I don't think our government should be able to use the term revenue. I really don't. I, I think the, the, the IRS should be called the ITS, the uh, Internal Tax Services, and they should have to say what it is. It's tax. Revenue is something a company earns for providing a service of value that people choose to buy. Our government does not pr provide a service of value that people choose to buy. They take our money and give it to other people. So let's just, I'm not saying we should have no taxes. I'm saying let's call it taxes, not revenue. I'm sick of that. It sounds business-like, and these idiots couldn't run a business to save their life. Allows more employees to convert uh, traditional IRA, uh, 401k into a Roth 401k, a relatively new retirement savings options that front loads the tax liability. Those choosing the conversion would pay taxes on the funds transferred, but any future gains or withdrawals would be tax-free. Experts say the change will allow more flexibility for a larger number of retirement savers. Previously, 2010 legislation only allowed Roth 401k conversions for savers with so-called distributable funds, a relatively small group that mainly included people 59 and a half and older. Under the new rules, a Roth conversion would be available to anyone with a traditional 401k and an employer who offers a Roth account and conversion. So let me explain that in English for you. If you have a traditional 401k at your company and they have a Roth program that allows for conversion, you can convert now before you couldn't. That, that's what that means. If you have a traditional 401k with your employer and they do not offer a Roth program to anybody, you can't go say, I want to convert it and then make them do it, right? It's up to them whether they carry a Roth plan or not. The article goes on with the typical crap about how you should only do this if you expect your tax bracket to be as high as it is now or higher when you retire, which is a lie, a lie, a lie. Financial advisors should be freaking fired. They should be put in freaking prison for that lie. I swear to God, it's the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Because tell me this, Mr. Financial Liar, how do you know what my tax bracket's going to be when I'm freaking 65 years old? How do you know what the government's going to do with taxes by the time I'm 65 years old, given that I'm 40 right now? You don't. You're full of crap when you say you do. You have no idea what taxes are going to be like in 20 or 30 years. But I'll tell you one direction they continue to go almost at all times, freaking up. So I'll let that go. Let's talk about what this actually means and what's going on here. Um, what they're wanting to do is so you have, let's say, $100,000 sitting in your IRA. Or your, your 401k, I'm sorry. IRA, you could do this on your own if you wanted to anyway. Um, and you have a 401k with 100 grand in it. And you decide, hey, you know what? I'd rather pay tax now than when I retire. So you just convert it. It all happens behind the scenes. All your funds can stay the same. You hold the same stocks. You don't really even sell anything. You just move the holding vessel from standard 401 to Roth 401. But what the government says is now you have to pay taxes on that. Because you, you did not pay taxes on it when you put it in there. So you're going to pay taxes on it. This is the gotcha. You probably got that $100,000 in that account maybe over five, six, seven years, right? And if you would have paid taxes on it while you were earning it, you would have paid a certain rate. But since you're paying all the taxes as income, it jacks your income way up to a higher tax bracket, and you pay exorbitant taxes on it because it's taxed as though it's a lump sum distribution. So they get to take a big, a bigger hit than they would have taken if it was a Roth in the first place. What's the good news? The good news is when you have a Roth anything, 
If you ever need to get your money out with the right forms and format and the way you fill things out, you can take money out before your retirement age without paying penalties if it's the money that was put into the account, which would make it actually able to be removed in the future as long as the person you're working with knows what the hell they're doing. You cannot do that with any gains on the money that's in your Roth 401k or IRA. You can't do it, but you can do it on the money that was invested because you've already paid taxes on it. You got that? So there's no uh, there's no penalty for withdrawing the money that was sequestered there post-tax. All right. So that would be one advantage. The other advantage is when you do retire, when you reach 59 and a half or older, you can take that money out at any rate you choose, including all at once or a little at a time, and never pay tax, never pay another penny of tax on it ever again. What you're betting on isn't what your freaking tax bracket's going to be when you're 59 and a half. You idiots to keep saying that, you really need to be smacked. Okay. What you're betting on is that the gains on the money will outweigh the principal invested. So if you're a young person investing money in your 401k, you have a long time before you withdraw the money that for every dollar you put in, you're going to have two, three, four, or five dollars in gains. And no matter what your tax bracket is, you're better off paying the tax on a dollar than paying the tax on five. Get it? So that's the thing. Now, what's the ulterior motive here? Let's look at it just from the upfront, easy to understand way. They trick you into paying a higher tax on money than you would have by paying it as a single payout as you do the conversion and increasing your tax rate. But that's really, you know, if you want to play ball, that's that's the way this game gets played. And you have to decide. And the, the smart thing for a person to do in this situation, in many instances, isn't to move the money. It's to cease contributions to the conventional and begin contributions to the Roth. Right? Because the penalty, you know, it depends on how much money's there, how long you are for retirement. You gotta make that decision by looking at it and running some numbers. And if you have an honest financial advisor, they can help you make that decision. If they say anything about your tax bracket when you retire, get a new financial advisor. Let me say that again. When you're having this discussion with your financial advisor, if they discuss your tax bracket, and you're under the age of, let's say, 45, don't even speak to them ever again. Find a new one. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're Now, if you are 55, right, and you plan on starting to take distributions at 59 and a half, you can really kind of forecast things pretty accurately. But 20, 25, 30 years into the future, they don't know jack diddly. They don't know jack diddly crap about what's going to happen then. So you make that decision for yourself based on those things. But what could be some other ulterior motives here? If Congress and the government... And the government accounting office are looking at this, and you know they have their eyes on this money. They want to get at this money, right? And they're thinking, eventually we're going to freaking uh, nationalize these accounts anyway. Why not double dip? Why not get them to convert and then nationalize them? That, that would be one thing. I'm not so sure that works out, because I keep telling you, I think nationalizing these retirement accounts involves grandfathering existing ones and creating a new program and then convincing you to do it yourself, right? And the other way they do this is to take all your cash options away in the 401ks and replace them with government bond options, which they've already done. So maybe, maybe not. But what about this? What if the government looks at the economic future and goes, <laughs> We, these people think they're going to make money over the next 20 years by being invested? They, 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 we're going to kill the economy anyway. We're, there's not going to be any gains to pay taxes on. It, it won't matter. So let them, let them move it over. They'll pay taxes now because if we try to tax them then, they'll, they'll be taxed at a loss. 
Now, un unlike the concept that they're going to nationalize them anyway, so why not double dip by first getting a big move pushed over uh, and then nationalizing the accounts by force? I, I don't think it's going to happen anyway. But when I start looking at it from a standpoint, if I'm running the government accounting offices right now and I'm helping and advising Congress on this, and I'm looking at it from this standpoint of what am I going to be able to derive more taxes from? And I think that you're going to have a huge... Um, a huge you know, series of losses in the future, then I'd rather have you into a Roth today. Because I'd rather tax the money today than tax the money you've lost tomorrow in a conventional 401k. Because there's, there's some real nastiness about the conventional 401ks that I don't think people understand. Let's say that I invested $100,000 in any type of investment vehicle that's not tax-deferred. And that investment is now worth $90,000, okay? And I start to take money out of that investment to use for my own good. I have no income. I have a $10,000 loss. Got that? If I invest $100,000 in my 401k and the stock market takes a crap and eventually I have to start taking money out of it and now my 401k that I put $100,000 into is worth $50,000, I'm not getting a $50,000 less. I'm still paying taxes on the $50,000 as income as I extract it. It is somewhat offset because that $50,000 represents money I never pay taxes on. In a Roth, in a Roth, it doesn't matter, up or down. It, it doesn't matter at all. So the government is only going to be able to tax what's left of your conventional 401k or IRA. But they've already taxed everything that's ever gone into your Roth. And when they start making it easier for you to go ahead and move and pay now, what they're essentially saying is, we ourselves have so little confidence in the future, we'd rather take what we can get now than what we might get later. And they're also sending another signal. We're broke and we know it and we need money. Back on the guns a bit, I said last week that it would be a great idea to take a, a person who's never shot a gun before to a range and shoot with them in a safe, controlled environment, that that would be one of the best things you could do to create new advocates of defending the Second Amendment. got an email from Mac in New Jersey. Mac said, I wanted to comment on your advice to take a rookie to the range idea. My British brother-in-law came to visit a year ago and said he really wanted to shoot a handgun while he was here. He is ex-army and had to surrender his handguns when they were banned in England. Get it, guys? See, this is why it's so important. Um, I stammered, I don't know anything. He said he had researched the place on the web. We went. Nice folks running the range. We shot 9mm Beretta, 357 Magnum, uh, 45-1911, and an AR-15. He asked, are you sure you've never shot before because your groupings are tighter than mine? I told him I play a lot of video games. And after an hour, I was feeling quite conflicted, and I told him so. He said, you play golf, right? What you're trying to accomplish when you play golf, you're trying to hit a target 400 yards away, right? That's all you're doing here, using a piece of sporting gear to hit a target 25 meters away. Two weeks later, on his last day here, we had five or so hours before his flight home. Uh, and it was me that suggested we go to the range again. I now have my firearms purchase card and will be purchasing my first this year. You couldn't have been more right with your advice. Love the show. See, it works. See, it works. And I can tell you something about Mac. I don't know Mac any more than you do from what I just read. 
But I know that today, when someone starts talking about banning weapons or taking away weapons or requiring registration, requiring anything, and you might wonder why he has a firearms purchase card, New Jersey, there's your answer, New Jersey. You, you see, some of these onerous regulations already exist at the state level. Illinois right now is trying to pass basically a clone of the Feinstein legislation at the state level, right? And I'm opposed to all of that, but it, it, I'd rather fight one state at the Supreme Court than the entire nation at the Supreme Court. You know, and then this is how a republic works. The states should be the ones making these decisions so that people can vote with their feet and their wallets. And I can tell you right now, the states with the most onerous firearms legislation, they are the ones that are the brokest. They're the brokest states out there. They're the ones in the most trouble. They really are. And the ones with the most freedom are attracting more and more people. The ones with the most onerous firearms legislation, shockingly enough, are the ones with the highest state tax rates and the highest property tax rates. Why? Because they're broke and they're trying to squeeze blood out of a stone. But here you have someone that was simply taken and shown and, and allowed to experience it, and that had a greater ability to convert them than anything you could ever do with words. See, the words only are accepted when the mind is open to them. When the mind is ready to receive, are words accepted? But if you can get someone to take an action... It overrides the natural block of the mind. Because now I can't be afraid of it because I don't understand it. There are so many people that fail to take so many actions in their lives because of fear. They, even if it's a move up, they're comfortable where they are. And to take that move and go do something else. I remember when I was in the military. All you wanted was to get out of basic training and get to your, your tech school, your AIT school, right? That's, uh, every minute since day you got to get through this. This is the worst part of the whole dadgone thing. But the day you leave, you kind of feel like, I don't know about this. At least I knew what I was getting into here. And the same thing when you get through with your schooling. And then you're set off to your first real unit. You get comfortable. And many people in our society have become comfortable with what the media tells them about any issue. And the only way to get past the mental block is to have them take an action that actually feels good, that's empowering to them. Because as soon as that person can go to a race, look around, there's all these people shooting, nobody's angry with each other. It's the most polite place you'll ever see on planet Earth is a range. And then they, they, they use these weapons for themselves. They realize what they're doing. They get some level of proficiency with it. All of a sudden, it be, and when they, when they take the step of becoming a firearms owner, a firearms ban has a direct effect on them. They see it as their property now. That's how we fight this, and you need to be doing it every opportunity you can get. I'm going to throw in toward the ends here a, a real quick expert panel question that came in by email, but I'm telling you right now this is an exception, and you guys need to listen to me good right now. If you want to ask an um, expert panel member a question, Paul Wheaton, uh, Joe Nobody, Frank Sharp Jr., Stephen Harris, any of the people on the expert council, you need to pick up your phone and dial 866-65-THINK and leave a two-minute or less message by phone. Those calls are slated for the Friday show. The minute you hang the phone up, send me an email, right? 
put expert panel question in the subject line and say, I just left a message for whoever you left it for. I called from number XYZPDQ, whatever your number was. That way I'll know to pull it out of the phone queue for special consideration. I generally don't know what I don't do what I'm doing today, but I figured I would do one because one, I could help this guy out. And two, I could make the point for you guys yet again of how you ask an expert panel member question because I get a lot of emails. And generally when I get an email for expert panel question, it rapidly ends up in the deleted items folder. You need to call in your questions, as I've said before. But let me go ahead and do this one because I thought this one was interesting. And I didn't really have an answer. So when I don't have an answer, it's really interesting to me. It says, what is reverse polarity and what effect does it have on equipment and systems? Issue. We Notice how the guy, and there's another reason. He asked the question the right way. There's a question. Here's the, here's the details. Issue. We have a 34-foot Sea Ray Sundancer in California Delta, about 100 miles from our home. It's our recreation and fallback position if we need to leave home. We're also members of a private island in the Delta accessible only by boat. Our boat is a 2000 model with an onboard 4.5 Westbrook generator, but we also take our Honda EU2000i and use it at the island. When we plug in the Honda generator, we use it as shore power, and the panel shows that we have reverse polarity. When I turn on the systems, the reverse polarity goes out and things work as expected. I have not been able to get an answer that I can understand from any source on what this is and means. Thanks in advance. Love the video on the battery banks. Thanks, Jack. MSB member Zach uh, Zandy Clark on the forums. Okay. So this is Steven's answer. Reverse polarity in the AC has to do with hot and neutral being swapped. On the AC plug, you have a smaller blade that goes in the wall. This is called hot and a slightly larger one called neutral. And the round one at the bottom is ground. Back at the big generator plant making your electricity is a huge three-phase generator making the power. On the generator, you have neutral, L1, L2, and L3. Between the neutral and L1, you have what is converted to 120 volts through the transformer on your pole at your house. Being neutral and L2, there is, again, 120 volts. Between L1 and L2 is 240 volts. My important point is at the generator plant, neutral is connected to ground. So there should be no voltage between neutral and ground. If the little indicator light sees voltage between neutral and ground, it will turn on a light to tell you this. It's assuming that hot and neutral got reversed. Everything will still work fine, but it's a safety issue. If you have a metal drill that's only two prongs and you reverse hot and neutral, suddenly you're holding a metal drill that is hot and your feet are now on ground. That's how GFI, ground fault interruption circuits, work. If it sees any voltage on the ground line, it pops the breaker. Your little Honda generator is a single-phase generator, not a three-phase generator with hots and neutrals. So there is no neutral because it's two wires coming out of the generator head, or in this case, the Honda inverter of the inverter generator. So your little indicator light may very well see voltage between neutral and ground, and thus the light comes on, even if you have ground hooked up. If the light only comes on when the generator is on, but everything on the boat is still off, the light could be seeing noise coming from the generator or current leakage between the neutral and ground and turning on the light. When you turn on the boat system, this will place a load on the generator, and the noise will be shorted out to load 
to the load and real power will be flowing. The AC voltage noise is like baby powder on a table. One little puff of air and it's blown away. It's got voltage but no current behind it. So when there is real voltage with current flowing, the noise is literally a fart in the wind, and your indicator light sees no voltage between the neutral and the ground, and it goes out. This is probably the best explanation I can give you your question, is why the light is on when your boat is off, but the generator is, is on, but the light is out when both the generator and the boat are on. Steve, I think that's an excellent explanation, and it helps me answer something that I'm going to tell you about that happened during our blackout. So... We were running, and we have run our cable, uh, not our cable box, our satellite receiver box, our TV, our DVD player, our refrigerator, all kinds of lights, all kinds of stuff. Uh, we've run it all year long with no problems, and then we have this big blackout that happened over the Christmas break. Okay, So the lights come back on one night, and then we're watching TV, and every five minutes the lights would go out for about a minute and then come back on. This was the electric company bringing down power to bring up other legs of power. It was just something we were going to have to live with. I don't have a problem with it. I wasn't upset, but we were watching some stuff on TV that we actually wanted to see. Well, those of you that have something like a satellite dish know that when it goes out, it's not like cable. As soon as it comes back on, it doesn't just come up. It has to sink, and it can take five minutes or more. Well, so just about the time that it would sink and start working again, it would go back, the power would go off, and like for three seconds. And finally I got sick of this. We still had all the electrical cords hooked up with the generator. I go outside and say, you know what? I'm not going to turn everything back on the generator power, but I'm just going to hook up the, the, the TV and the satellite box to the generator. And I hook it up, and the satellite dish comes, the box comes on. It starts to find itself, and it freezes. And it would not sink. Now, this is not about reverse polarity here. This is about what Steve was talking about with noise. In the communications industry, we call it crosstalk. Okay? So it would not sink. It would not sink. It would not sink. There was no, it would just get to the stage where it starts to say, you know, acquiring satellite signal and not one bar would show up. You pull it out of the generator, you plug it into the wall, and all of a sudden it starts sinking right away. So had I not used it many, many times, I would have thought, Sine wave, you know, uh, you know, modified versus true sine wave. But in this case, what it was is with absolutely no load on the generator, other than the satellite box and the TV, which was very minor and pulling out of the same receptacle, there was noise that confused the satellite box and it wouldn't work. Had I went and hooked up every all, you know, so at least something else to draw some amount of power, we probably would have gotten a sink. I think it's the same issue in a different way, and it's kind of interesting, and it's why even though, uh, uh, what's his name, Zane broke the rules here, uh, I went ahead and sent his question off to Stephen Harris. The rest of you guys that want to ask an expert panel question, again, 866-65-THINK, ask your question, question first, details second, Then email Jack at the survival podcast.com, put expert panel question in the subject line, tell me who you called for and what number you called from, and I'll give your call priority in the queue. If you email me your question, it may never see the light of day unless you get lucky like Zane did. All right, well, let's fill, uh, finish up with something on the economy and understanding why it's not chicken little to say that this economy is in bad shape. I was thinking about how I would best phrase it to somebody today. If they said to me, what is the actual state of our economy? And I would say that the life support machines keeping the economy of alive, alive are running on backup power. That, that's exactly how I would describe it. The life support systems keeping the economy running today are currently running on backup power. 
And that's kind of a scary thought. Now, why do I say things like that? How about this? This is on the Economic Collapse blog. Government dependents outnumber those with private sector jobs in 11 U.S. states. America is rapidly becoming a nation of takers. An increasing number of Americans expect the government to take care of them from the cradle to the grave, and they expect the government to dig into the pockets of others in order to pay for it all. The philosophy can be very seductive, but what happens when the number of takers eventually outnumbers the number of producers? In 11 different states, the number of government dependents exceeds the number of private sector workers. This list of states includes some of the biggest states in the country. California, New York, Illinois, Ohio, Maine, Kentucky, South Carolina, Mississippi, Alabama, New Mexico, and Hawaii. It is interesting to note that seven of those states were won by Barack Obama on election night. In California, there are 139 takers for every 100 private sector workers. That's crazy. The American people have become absolutely addicted to government money, and it gets worse with each passing year. If you can believe it, entitlements accounted for 62% of all federal spending in the fiscal year 2012. Let me say that one again. <laughs> If you can believe it, entitlements accounted for 62% of all federal spending in fiscal year 2012. It would be one thing if we could afford all of this spending, but unfortunately we simply cannot. We are drowning in debt and stealing more than $100 million more dollars from future generations with each passing hour. No bank robber in history can match that kind of theft. Yes, we will always need a safety net. There are many people out there that simply cannot take care of themselves. We simply don't want to see anyone sleeping in the streets or starving to death. But if the number of people jumping on the safety net continues to grow at the current price, the net will break and will not be available for any of us. For example, the number of Americans on food stamps grew from about 17 million in the year 2000 to more than 47 million today. It nearly tripled in just 12 years. What will happen if it nearly triples again over the next 12 years? So there you go. I, I want you to, I mean, there's a lot of details there, but I want you to just take this in. The day that the country absolutely has to go broke is the day that there's completely across the board more takers than makers, right? The producer produces, the government takes and redistributes to the taker. Now we have already reached that point in 11 states. Now, does that mean that there's more people on entitlement programs in those 11 states than total working people in those states? No. And this is how they're continuing the charade. When you add in the number of government employees, you get back closer to a balance. But how do the government employees get paid? From the same system that pays the entitlements. It's the money comes from this. I'm not saying that the person with a job at the local government office is in the same league as the person who is just taking money for doing nothing. Because they're showing up, they're working, they're doing something. But they're not producing anything of true value. They're not generating income. They're taking money away from the private sector. So the private sector is now outnumbered in 11 states by the total number of people on entitlement programs. That means basically, for instance, the number that they gave us there was in California, there's 139 takers for every 100 private sector workers. If you add in the number of public employees 
They still have to earn money from the private sector. It gets worse. But even if we leave them out, we just take the people on entitlement programs. That means for every person working, their work has to support 1.39 people who are not working. Let's just say that if we added in the public sector employees, we would bring up the taker number to an even 200. That means every person working in the private sector has to, to provide full support for two people in the public sector, one way or another, either by employment or by entitlement. Now, you're going to say to yourself, well, that can't possibly work, and that is the point. But then we have to ask ourselves, how is this working now? This is working now through debt at the state level, the local level, and the federal level. If we had to pay for this stuff, if we passed a flat-out balanced budget amendment that said we can spend no more than we take in, all this stuff would go away tomorrow morning because people wouldn't have it. You've been tricked into believing the cost of government is X when it's X plus Y and Y is a big-ass number. As I said at the beginning of this segment, our economy is on life support and the life support systems are running on backup power. That's where we're at. This is just one more indicator of why. And I finish up with this today because it ties in nicely with our need for self-defense. When this thing falls apart, you're going to need to be able to defend yourself. You absolutely are. We need to defend our rights to defense now while we can instead of tomorrow when it's too late, when you need it and it's not here. And the other thing is to remind you of why we do all the things that we do every day. This is something that no one should be able to look at and think is okay. No one, anybody that looks at this and says it's okay for 11 states to have a population of people on entitlement programs that outnumbers the number of people working in their private sector and thinks that's okay is mentally damaged. They don't understand math and they don't know how numbers work. And I want you to understand that there's millions of people that fall into that description. And they're going to be the ones that are in the deepest load of crap when this thing goes south. And I want you to realize that and continue to be prepared for a day of reckoning in the economic sector like you probably cannot imagine. Because it's going to happen. This is just one more example of why. With that, I'm going to wrap today's show up uh, and hope that you guys enjoyed it. Uh, we did take kind of a tour of the the, uh, the gun rights world, at least in the beginning of the show, with a little bit sprinkled in throughout the end there. Uh, I want you guys to continue to be vigilant on this, and I want you to realize that exactly what I said would happen is already beginning to happen. Counter-proposed legislation that sounds like it's okay, but has things in it like, oh yeah, you can, state of Texas, you guys can let your guys carry concealed, but you need to make sure that they have a good reason for requesting their permit. That reads like gun legislation in freaking Europe or Russia. Not like gun legislation in the United States. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. 
Nobody up there cares, they're living for today. 